think you write about what interests you. You know, even if you're making it the subject of a joke, you're choosing that subject because you care about it. This is a way of channeling your frustrations and anger, curiosity as well. Comedy gives you a way of looking at subjects from a completely unusual perspective, a surprising perspective. Welcome to Script Apart, a podcast about the first draft secrets of great movies. Each episode, we speak to a brilliant screenwriter who's kindly dug out their initial screenplay for what became a beloved movie, discussing what changed, what didn't, and why, from first draft to the big screen. This week's guest is one of the defining voices in British contemporary comedy. You might know Armando Iannucci as the creator of Veep, the co-creator of Alan Partridge, or as the writer-director behind 2017's superb The Death of Stalin. You may also know him as the man responsible for the acclaimed new HBO sci-fi show Avenue 5, or as the filmmaker behind this year's excellent The Personal History of David Copperfield. Armando is probably best known, however, for one character, Malcolm Tucker, the terrifying spin doctor at the black heart of BBC comedy The Thick of It. In 2009, Tucker hit the big screen. In The Loop, about politicians in the US and UK scrambling for power as both countries contemplate a military invasion, left a massive imprint. Not only did the film receive an Oscar nomination for Best Adapted Screenplay, but 11 years later it's referenced all the time, whenever politics spills into the absurd or surreal. Now, if you've listened to the show before, you know that usually we go through a film's first draft beat by beat, scene by scene. Here, there was so much to discuss with Armando that things took a slightly different path, as you'll hear. Here's the man himself on how the incredible In The Loop came together, the sweary delight of writing dialogue for Malcolm Tucker, and why the thick of it could not exist in today's political landscape. Oh, and listen out for a great tale about the time he committed a spot of light international espionage. You're listening to Script Apart, hosted by me, Al Horner, produced by Camille Demek. Armando, welcome to Script Apart. How are you? Uh, I'm very good, thank you. Enjoying the dying uh, summer as it's, this is the, technically the last day, I think, before we get our autumn weather. You are someone who I've been so excited to have on the show for a while now. All right. But, but, but settling on a piece of work of yours to focus on for an episode was a yeah. pretty Herculean task because, well, 2020 marks your 30th year in comedy the array of timeless characters. Thanks for that. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the array of timeless characters who you've helped bring to the screen in that time is kind of dizzying. And over the last couple of years, of course, you've been writing and directing films um, that feel at once like extensions of your existing work, but at the same time, something totally new for you. So I kind of wanted to kick things off um, by asking, when you look back at your body of work so far, what are the connecting dots you see? I suppose it's about people's private and their public clashes, really. You know, the big stage, but what happens to the the little person on the big stage? Now, whether that's about politics or whether it's about behaviour, you know, just personal behaviour and how you behave differently when you're with people as opposed to how you are sort of internally. Um, and there's an element of that. I suppose it's an element of naturalism and... Uh, fantastic, you know, weirdness going on at the same time, trying to make things look like they're authentic and really happening. So keeping the performances very naturalistic and so on, but the dialogue can be bizarre. And I suppose a mixture of <laughs> of, of intellectual and stupid, that's what I quite like. I, I kind of like, it's always funny to see people who look 
smart acting rubbish. I suppose that's possible. <laughs> yeah. Well, in the loop certainly ticks all of those boxes. Um, it's what fans might describe as classic Iannucci. It's a film that, like a lot of your work, rips the curtain back on the notion of people of authority being the best of us somehow. We, we, as a culture, kind of buy into this idea that politicians, in this case, are noble people with impeccable senses of right and wrong, standing up for their constituents. But actually, as your work so often revels in revealing, a lot of the time they're spineless idiots. So why is that something you like to explore? I kind of, you know, to, to give them their due, I, I think people go into politics, with the, most of them go in with the right motives in that they want to change things, they want to mm. improve people's lives. And then I think quite a lot of them, the problem is as they get nearer power, they have to compromise their, their behaviour and their public beliefs in order to get power. But sometimes that constant compromise maybe results in them altering their beliefs so that eventually when they are in power, they don't end up doing the thing that they thought they went into politics to do. Or the other thing I want to, always want to show is the pressure from outside, the pressure the media puts on, the pressure we, the electorate, put on them and how they respond to that pressure, really. And, and something like In the Loop, which is very much inspired by the... If, if you can be inspired by a disastrous war, the the invasion of Iraq, I was I was always um, I wanted to know how something like that could happen, how mm. in, how Britain could go into league with America and invade another country, even when every expert and public opinion and most of the party machinery was saying this will be a disaster. This doesn't make any sense whatsoever. This, you know, once you open this box, it'll be very difficult, you know, as has have results shown, you know, it's been a complete disaster and has affected most of politics for the last 15 to 20 years. So, you know, I was intrigued as to how does that happen? How do these perfectly, you know, experienced, intelligent people in charge, how do they end up doing something disastrous? And, and then, uh, so that was the inspiration for it anyway. When you think back on that fascination of yours, um, that you mentioned the sort of like the public versus private yeah. and the tension that that often brings out in people, do you remember where it was and when it was in your life that, uh, you know, you sort of landed on that fascination? You seem to have this impulse to kind of reveal the circus beneath the surface of powerful people. Was there a moment in your young adult life where it dawned on you that that would be a thing? And <laughs> uh, yeah. All sorts of things. You know, I went to the same primary school as Billy Connolly, not at the same time. And when I was there, um, it was a Catholic school in St. Peter's Partick in Glasgow. And at the time, Billy Connolly was just becoming well-known in Scotland, but not in the UK. And all our teachers actually told us that it was wrong to listen to Billy Connolly. You know, we'd circulate these cassette tapes of his. <laughs> and he was notorious at the time for doing this spoof kind of crucifixion sketch with Jesus talking in a Glaswegian accent and, <laughs> and sort of on the cross kind of pissing on some of the centurions and stuff like that. <laughs> and because we were a Catholic school, we were told in no uncertain terms that it was actually sinful to uh, listen to Billy Connolly. And then about four or five years later, he became famous throughout the UK from his Parkinson appearance and then internationally. 
And so he was invited back by the school. <laughs> he meet everyone and everyone cheer him. And that kind of made me realise how, you know, it was my first insight into, how, into institutional hypocrisy on a massive scale. <laughs> <laughs> so it's that um, politically, I've always been interested in politics and the drama of it. You know, I was one of these called geeky people who, at the age of twelve, thirteen, would still stay up late to watch the election and look at the figures and the American elections and stuff. There's something fascinating about that. And I grew up in my constituency was Glasgow Hill Head, which at the time had a very famous by-election. Roy Jenkins came back from Europe to found the SDP, the Social Democrat Party, and there was a by-election, a vacancy in Hillhead, and he stood. And so it was all happening on my doorstep. This, And it was considered, you know, the most important by-election of the 20th century. And therefore, every major political figure came up to speak. So I had a kind of, for a geek like me, it was sort of a Glastonbury experience. I mean, it was fascinating to watch. So I found that very, very intriguing and exciting. And you know, I want politics to work. I don't think it's full of idiots and, and venal, corrupt people. Um, I think most people go in with the best of intentions and most people try and do a good job. But for some reason, what's happened at the top has become uh, just stupid. It's just become, it, it's broken. Mm. And, and that air of frustration attached to the sort of anger that, you know, I felt at the Iraq invasion. Um, it has prompted one of the reasons that, I, you know, I want to look at that as a subject, as a topic. Yeah, is that quite typical for you? I mean, I'm interested to what extent comedy is a release valve or some kind of coping yeah, I mean, mechanism. I mean, always, at school, I was always the one making jokes and doing the impressions of the teachers. And, you know, I wasn't <laughs> that sporty. I mean, it was okay, but not, you know, and I wasn't into fashion and music and all that stuff. So, you know, my way of kind of characterizing myself was being funny. Um, uh, and I suppose that's always been my natural uh, outlook in life. You know, if I meet someone, I kind of want to know whether they have a sense of humor or not, because I find it very difficult talking to people who don't have <laughs> sense of humor. <laughs> yeah. I, I think if you speak to most comedians, they'll tell you that they, you know, you grow up thinking there are basically two types of human being, one with a sense of humour and one without, really. And they're kind of different species. <laughs> and I suspect part of the problem with politics is that most of the ones without sense of humour, politics is, is, is peopled with a kind of larger than average proportion of humourless individuals mm. who don't quite get it. Um, but who think they do. Um, and I think therein lies the problem. Is there catharsis in it for you? I mean, I've spoken to, to mm. writers and, and comedians before who say similarly, like a lot of their work channels things that frustrate them, that yeah. if they weren't able to find comedy in, they'd be screaming in frustration about. Yeah, exactly. Yes, no, absolutely. And I think you write about what interests you. You know, even if you're making it the subject of a joke, you're choosing that subject because you care about it, really. And it is a way of channeling your frustrations and anger, curiosity as well. You know, some subjects are just interesting to look at. You know, I don't know where this is going, but it might be worth doing a story about it because it might throw up, you know. And I also think comedy gives you a way of looking at subjects from a completely unusual perspective, a surprising perspective, which kind of helps. Mm. But yeah, 
I don't think you can change people's beliefs through comedy. I think you can just maybe use comedy to explore the issues. But, you know, if you want to change people's beliefs, you should go into politics or you should go into campaigning journalism uh, or, or, or something like that. Can you explain for anyone who isn't aware what was going on at that time in terms of this invasion of Iraq, this disastrous lurch towards war in partnership with America? I'd love to hear about, like, yeah, your personal perspective on it at the time. Um, yeah, were, were you going to protests? You were obviously kind of quite affected by it to be um, so frustrated you were channeling your anger into a screenplay about it. You know, I don't go on many demos, but the the march against the invasion of Iraq uh, was, was one I went on because mm. I felt very... And it didn't feel to me that it was something coming from the left or the right. It was just coming from people's sense of outrage and um, people's sense of common sense. You know, people on the left and the right just thought this is ridiculous. This, you know, it's after 9-11. We all knew the source of 9-11, the terrorists, you know, uh, training in Afghanistan, but, you know, funded partly by Saudi money. Um, the response to 9-11 being to go into exactly the wrong country just seemed extraordinary. And then watching Tony Blair in particular be beholden to America, get slightly starstruck about going to America. And I remember reading in some of the memoirs and diaries that came out years later, talking about, you know, Jack Straw and Tony Blair, and Jack Straw was the foreign secretary at the time, being just excited to be in the West Wing. You know, and you just think, well, no, that's not how you should be running a country. And I, th I think Britain still is influenced a lot by this strange conceit that somehow we're America's special friend and that we can somehow influence America. We can influence America. Mm. You know, we're, we're, we're a, proportionately, we're tiny compared to America. Um, and it just seemed... To me, it just seemed like such a weird walking into the fire without any protective equipment, yeah. despite people telling him you've got to, <laughs> you know, it just seemed like a kind of, you know, walking into oblivion and everyone knew he was walking into oblivion and lo and behold, he was. The, and also, you know, the the pretense that this was going to be debated endlessly in Parliament, but Parliament really only given very short amount of time to debate it and being misled with things like a document that said, you know, Satan could strike us within 45 minutes and, and so on. That all turned out to be false. So that was the starting point with it, you know, and I had this vehicle already, the thick of it on, on TV. Yeah. And I just thought that would be the ideal, taking that kind of, taking the cast from it and there's, the approach to how we make it and write it, but putting it on a larger international scale, bringing in a whole American version of it as well, so that there are the two sides that meet. And watching, you know, the UK be out-manipulated by the US uh, and it lead to disaster. That, to me, struck me as something that I felt confident to do. You know, it's also looking back on things like watching Dr. Strangelove and The Great Dictator and, you know, various political comedies like that. It felt that something I I wouldn't mind having a go at. But for me, in my head, though, it was just, a, it was just going to be a little thing. It was just going to be an extension of 
of the thick of it, but bringing in American cast, I didn't realise it would, you know, get us to the Oscars and <laughs> lead to Veep and Emmys and stuff like that. That was all a kind of strange <laughs> afterlife to it. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Wow. And yeah, I mean, that's interesting because it sounds like you hadn't actively been, it's not like you were actively looking to do a film version of The Thick of It. It was that you stumbled across the idea and realised you already had the apparatus. Yeah, it's the topic, it's the subject. I think that that happens generally. You know, I, if a subject comes up and I think I want to make something about it, usually you kind of know pretty soon whether that's going to be a film or a, you know, a, a short story or a TV show, a one-off or a series or, you know, it, it kind of determines, or a radio thing, you know, it, it kind of determines what it is. And I just felt that we had... We had the kind of the infrastructure already, you know, with the thick of it. Uh, we had a methodology. We had a kind of way of writing and rehearsing and improvising and the research process, and you know, which I can go into about this. Um, so it felt like, you know, something we could do quickly. That was the other thing. I wanted to make something fast. Mm. I didn't want to make something that, you know, takes two years of planning and a year to shoot. And before you know it, it's not out until five years time, <laughs> by which time the world has moved on. I wanted to have a sense of immediacy about it. So it just felt like the natural thing to do. Mm. And it's a spin-off, but it's not a direct spin-off. No. As you alluded to a minute ago, you use a lot of the same actors from the thick of it, but you recast them. And yes. it's only spin doctor Malcolm Tucker that really makes it from the show. Yes, that's right. Yeah. yeah. So I see the cast as a sort of, repertory company of performers and actors and yeah and we did this thing so it's not technically canon with <laughs> <laughs> with with the thick of it whether it's canon with veep i don't i have no idea no it can be no because anna clumsky plays plays someone else in of course in, yeah in the loop so no it can't be and indeed um zach woods does so yeah so it's it's its own canon it's a mm. canon of one <laughs> yeah was that decision did that kind of come about out of wanting the film to be accessible for audiences who hadn't seen the thick of it? Did you not want to kind of yeah, have the baggage yeah. of all these characters' backstories? Yes, yeah, so, and also because I knew it was an American story, partly, uh, and you know we would want an international distribution. We want to show it in America and internationally. Um, I kind of thought it needs to be very self-contained, so no prior knowledge is required. We'll reintroduce Malcolm Tucker to the audience if they have never met Malcolm before, but everyone else is kind of new. Mm -hmm. um, I, I thought that was important, really, um, because, you know, it's a, it's a thing. You're very conscious when you make a film. You're very conscious of spending, spending other people's money. <laughs> and so you kind of want, maybe it's just me, but I kind of want to spend it right, you know, and, and get our money back or get their money back. <laughs> Whereas I'm not saying with television, you're not, but it, television is so fixed. You know, television is like, this is how long it's going to be. This is how many episodes. This is how much you have. This is when we will put it out. Whereas with film, it's so uncertain. You've no idea how long it's going to be, when you're going to shoot it, who's going to be in it. Um, uh, um, whether it's going to get shown anywhere and when, uh, you know, it's so, so uncertain. So I was conscious of that uncertainty, really. So I thought, actually, it would be good to have a self-contained, you know, so audiences outside the regular thick of it audience would, would still, you know, have a, a, a get a good sense of it. Mm. And you mentioned the research a moment yeah. ago. 
Now, the most famous research story, the tale that's done the rounds over the years, is this story about a quote-unquote 12.30 meeting. You ah, managed to blag yes, your way into the White House. So, <laughs> quite a lot of it was, you know, we. so I, I did, for the thick of it, I did lots of research and I spoke to people who worked in cabinet office or in communications within the civil service, ex-ministers and all that sort of thing. That That kind of allowed me to know where where the focus was in the thick of it. So I did something similar with uh, In The Loop, you know, speaking to intelligence this side and, and going out to Washington and going around the State Department, the Pentagon, uh, CIA chats we had, intelligence, national security, um, Senate offices, the Nancy Pelosi's office, um, Joe Biden's office, actually, while he was still Senator Biden. Um, all these things. And yes, a journalist out there told me that if I wanted to get into the State Department, because I said, I just want to get a look at what it looks like, so that because a lot of our scenes are going to be set there, and I just want to get in and get the look right. And he said, well, if you, at the time I was still based at the BBC, and he said, well, if you go up to the reception at the State Department and just say, I'm from the BBC. I'm here for the 12.30. They'll show you through. So I did. And I went with my assistant. I looked about 12. <laughs> was, you know, he was 24. But, and we went with our passes and said, we're here for 12.30. And they went, oh, it's over there. And went into the building. And no one was escorting us to the 12.30. So we were just wandering around the State Department. I thought, well, you know, the our set designer wants some visuals. So we just started getting our phones out and just photographing the State Department. And I kind of thought, this is so, this is quite exciting, but it is also technically international espionage. There's <laughs> uh, a fine line one batting here. And then some big guy came around the corner and went, excuse me? And I said, we're here for the 12.30. And he went, it's, it's just over there. And so we went in and it was a press briefing. It was Condit Lisa Reiter's regular press briefing. And it was very, very dull. Um, but we discovered this thing we talked about earlier, you know, the, the thing I felt about Washington generally was the buildings themselves outside look magnificent. They look very imperial. They look like ancient Rome, the big pillars, and they have that feel to them. When you go in, it's just lots of people in offices kind of scuttling around. And actually because they have this thing about federal government, you, you know, it's, it's seen as wrong to spend money on federal, on taxpayers' money, on government bureaucracy. So actually, they're quite scuzzy and untidy inside. And, and you know, people have moved in and haven't even, you know, two years on with each new administration, they haven't unpacked their boxes. So people's still got stuff in boxes. I discovered that, um, you know, they were so strapped for cash in the State Department. The desks and the chairs didn't match each other. Um, they bought two separate kind of lines of, they bought the cheapest desks and then they bought the cheapest chairs. And the cheapest chairs had kind of armrests that were too big so that when you couldn't quite push yourself in because they, they <laughs> so people are kind of writing in the, <laughs> the state department. <laughs> we went around the, the West Wing and that's a rabbit warren of small corridors, but 
people love to say they work in the West Wing. So yeah. they'll take anywhere. They'll take a base <laughs> at the end of the corner. So you'd see these like big four-star generals kind of sitting on a kind of small wooden chair with their laptops <laughs> on their knees like that because they wanted to tell their wife and their friends they work in the West Wing where they can, could have an enormous set of offices in the Roosevelt building across the way which was absolutely cavernous but that's not the same as saying you're in the West it Wing it just so doesn't sound as cool things like that so you you get a sense of that and then you know I we spoke about the security I mean the level of intelligence you know someone told us that they found that their best form of intelligence prior to the invasion of, of Iraq was the Baghdad newspapers. Baghdad newspapers were far more accurate in giving them information than their own operatives on the ground. <laughs> Rumsfeld, the defense secretary at the time, was doing this extraordinary recruitment drive of you know who we want to have in place once we've invaded and got rid of Saddam. And he would ask people, you know, do you speak Arabic? And if you said yes, he'd say, we, we can't hire you because that shows you have pro-Arab tendencies by speaking Arabic. So he then, you know, packed it with people who couldn't speak the language or who didn't know just the codes for things. Um, the guy at the CIA, said, he said to me, he spent the first four years in the CIA just working at a desk, thinking at some point someone's going to tap on the shoulder and say, you know, that room with all the maps and the thing, you know, the, the big, it's through there. But he said it never happened. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so it's things like that, you know, discovering just what is underneath it. And then they just a power play. Somebody told me that Washington is so vast and there's so much power there if you could find a table and a chair and a contact list and a telephone you can acquire power you know you 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 can never leave the room because if you leave the room you've left the meeting and you've left power um and um madeline albright when she was uh clinton secretary of state did this thing she taught her staff what she called bladder diplomacy which was how to get through eight our meetings without having to go to the bathroom because if you if you left and went to the bathroom they might make a decision without you being there and they told me about and this is this is fundamentally part of the plot of uh, in the loop how they would just try and find rooms and call them give give the room a committee name mm. and and try and make it sound really dull you know the the due process committee yeah, that was where Rumsfeld and Cheney and all the kind of pro-Iraq invasion people try to make their meetings happen in this very dull-sounding committee. But eventually, it leaked as to what the committee was, and soon everyone who was anyone wanted to be on the committee. And in the end, they had to move to another room and form another committee because the initial committee had grown in size. And that's you see that happen in stages within in the loop. It's so interesting hearing you talk about how, yeah, research yeah. is kind of like the, the best kind of, uh, yeah, inspiration for your work. And it, it's something I know that um, is true to this day. I mean, the last time I saw you, you were working on Avenue 5 and you yeah. were showing me all these photos on your phone of these amazing trips to NASA. So yeah. it's obviously something really important um, in your not, process. It's also, you know, I love, you know, I, you know, one of my all-time favorite shows is the, the Larry Sanders show, which is this, mm. you know, look behind the scenes of a chat show and as you watch it you think the people making this know exactly what a real chat show is like it just felt authentic <laughs> you've got that sense also, also when you watch the west wing 
yeah. that they had kind of got a sense of how it must work. And I think that's important. I find it anyway important because it, it then means when you sell the joke, you sell it to the audience kind of agreeing that you know what you're talking about. Yeah. And therefore, this absurdity is not so absurd that it could never happen. It's absurd because something like it probably has happened. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so I, I kind of wonder. And also the other thing is when you do this, it's not just the information, it's the people. You get a sense of who the people are, who work, mm. what they're like. I asked, it was um, actually, it was Biden's chief of staff um, at the time who said it took him a while to work out how you could tell a Democrat from a Republican who working there, which is Republicans walk, got in early and went home early. Democrats got in late and went home late. He said it just boiled down to those two different types of behavior. <laughs> and from that, you could tell if someone was a Democrat or a Republican. <laughs> and it's that, you know, I said to them, I want to know the dull facts, you know, you know, what time do you get in? Who else is in the office? Who do you work with? And then they started telling me about, you know, the young people who would hang outside a senior person's office and just in the hope that they would bump into them and get noticed by them. Mm. You know, the number of people who took up in Rumsfeld was into badminton the number of people who would suddenly take up badminton you know and we gave that to chad the zach woods character who would just hang outside Clinton's <laughs> office in the hope that he would get you know picked up by him and stuff like that you mentioned there that like you can do these absurd things because you know that they could happen because they probably have happened do you think that's why i mean the correlation between your work and real life is something that comes up so much. So whenever <laughs> Boris Johnson hides in a fridge to avoid reporters, the thick of it immediately starts trending on Twitter. I don't know if there's an official word for, for the way that life so frequently seems to imitate your art. I was thinking either Armando-esque or Ian Nuchish. We've spent a lot of time researching what the real world is like, and therefore mm. the stories we're telling are versions of real life stories, but just given an extra twist. So it, it, should, it should be the case that some things then crop up in real life that, that mirror things that have happened in the show or in the film, because otherwise we wouldn't have done her work properly. You know, in the, I tell the story about in the very first episode of The Thick of It, where they're improvising policies on the back of a car. And I asked the cast to just improvise, you know, come up with a policy that doesn't require much money, you know, because the minister's got to announce something. Um, three of the policies that they came up with and that were in the show within five years had become law was <laughs> everyone has to have their own plastic bag, asbos, and Chris Addison came up with a national spare room database, which became bedroom tax. Of course, yeah. So, you know, and I've had, you know, senior ex-cabinet ministers come up to me afterwards and go, I've been in the back of that car. You know, <laughs> but it's, you know, we didn't invent that. We, we, we kind of, well, we invented that scenario, but it's based on people telling us actually a lot of the big decisions. You'd think people spend a lot of time and money researching them, weighing up the pros and cons. Whereas a lot of this stuff, because the day is so jam packed, decisions are made quite quickly without much time to think about them because mm -hmm. there's a deadline all of a sudden. But In the Loop is a movie to watch now about governmental incompetence and careerism. You have all these characters whose own political ambitions kind of eclipse their sense of right and wrong. And it leads these quite morally vacuous characters often to getting behind a decision that will result in, in this case, war. It will result yeah. in destruction, chaos, and tens of thousands of deaths. 
So you must have seen over the years echoes of that in British history. So Brexit, for example, we saw all these ministers who'd previously voiced their opposition to it suddenly join the cause when they saw a position open up and an opportunity to worm their way closer to power. So yeah, I'd love to know what are some of the real life moments where you have actually had to nod your head and go, okay, yeah, fair enough. That does does echo in the loop. It does echo the thick of it fairly well. Well, I'd say the biggest one, and you know, the story's not over yet, but the the you know, all those Republicans who said that Donald Trump was a disgrace and was unfit for office and whatever, who then became his enablers, you know, and, and still are, you know, still you know, as long as he has the slightest suggestion that he might, you know, have retain power, are quite happy to, you know, go back on things they've said even two or three years ago. Uh, in order to get some share of that power. And and over here, this kind of, again, this sleepwalking into the abyss that we're doing with Brexit, you know, okay, I accept the referendum voted to leave and, and we're leaving, but this kind of obsession with actually walking towards the worst deal imaginable in, as some kind of, you know, badge of honour. <laughs> yeah. In much the same way people went into the First World War thinking it's, yeah, we're, yeah, we're going to show them, you know, and came home eight months, two years later with their arms blown off and their eye out or, you know, a nervous wreck because of mustard gas. You know, that's what we're doing now. And it's the inability for any of us to learn any lessons from history, uh, uh, not just history, but from the obvious signs of the present day. <laughs> yes. You know, that, that willful kind of, you know, walking towards, you know, the opposite of wherever the light is. Um, I, it just kind of defeats me. And it, it kind of, for me, you know, it just reinforces the anger and the frustration that I feel about how politics works. You know, it's, it's people with lots of power on the basis of not that big a proportion of the electorate, certainly not the majority of the electorate, you know, wielding absolute power, but in a destructive way, but in a willfully destructive way, in order to keep the support of the, um, the kind of blind uh, uh, backbenchers or loyal backbenchers who, who, who kind of allow them to stay in power. When it came to actually write in the loop, I mean, Jesse Armstrong, who uh, co-wrote the film, he discussed a kind of division of labour between yes. the writers. So you all came together collectively to outline, nailing yeah. what the skeleton of the story was. And after that, you kind of dispersed and took on different scenes and portions of the film individually. Yes. Jesse, Tony, Simon and myself. And I kind of divided it up into four acts. I know films are meant to have three acts, but most of my films actually in my head have four acts. Um, and I gave Jesse one act, Tony another act, Simon another act. And then we'd all kind of come together for the final act, which was like the drawing together of all those strategies. And then we all swapped round and, you know, so everyone had a say in everything. But that fundamentally, that was part of the process. You know, I wanted a UK situation. I wanted a US situation. Uh, I wanted them coming together. And then I wanted, you know, the climax, which happens at the, the UN. Um, oh, the trip to the UN was hilarious. Oh, yeah. 
<laughs> just they're all bitching about uh, you know for the centre of international diplomacy they're all bitching about everyone else it's like god the French <laughs> Jesus. there's no smoking signs everywhere but do they what do they pay, pay attention no no <laughs> yeah. if there's someone smoking under a no smoking sign it'll be a Frenchman you know it was a <laughs> And they showed us the kind of multi-faith room, which we then used as a room. Of course, yeah. Crucial scene in the in the film. Uh, and we tried to kind of get it ex- exactly right, actually. That outlining process, though, um, I mean, how quickly did it come together? Did you, uh, were there any kind of like avenues you explored and then kind of threw away before landing on the structure of the film as it is? Well, it's always, you know, once you do the search, it's always the danger that you try and pack everything into it. And, you know, we must have a Pentagon scene. We must have a CIA scene, you know. And and actually, it, I think after lots of kind of general discussions, it kind of boiled down to the things that we did read about. Um, in the film, it's Iceman, I think, the person yeah. who's the intelligence. Now, in real life, it's, I think he's called Curveball. And it was basically some drunk, drug-addled German, I think, who was just giving the US the intelligence they wanted about Saddam. And it was all completely made up because he just wanted money for drugs. But that was that whole kind of, that whole invasion plan was centred on information that curveball began. I thought that was a factor. I thought the other factor was Brits in Washington being like uh, actors and producers out in LA, you're just being sold kind of the world and then going home with absolutely nothing. I thought those those were the two kind of components, really. And then, you know, these people who you think are going to be the ones that will be the goodies. Uh, for example, you know, James Gandolfini's character. Yeah. Uh, the general actually being a bit of a disappointment in the end. Uh, mm. Things like that. In terms of the things you're placing in that outline so for example there's like that scene towards the end of the film where there's this document the post-war planning parameters implications and possibilities report or PWIP, as it's known for short um so there's a lot of opposition to an invasion in that document but of course we have that moment towards the end of the film where you know they're doctoring it and they're yeah, uh, yeah cutting parts out to make it all seem positive about yes, the invasion that was, that was based and i think and we actually see this moment in the film anyway but of accounts of rumsfeld and cheney going back and rewriting minutes of previous meetings mm. to indicate not what was said but what should have been said which is of course a line that david rash's character actually says in the film so yeah when you're writing scenes like that one do you put it in there because it's funny and let that lead you? Or are you aware that you're making statements about the way politics is broken as you write? Because there's there's something Orwellian about that moment. And when you stop and think about it beyond just how funny the situation is, it's incredibly disturbing. One of our very early screenings of the film was in Washington and lots of, you know, State Department, Senate staffers came to the screening and at the end of it, someone put his hand up and said, just on behalf of everyone else in this room, can we just apologise for saying sorry? Um, because an awful lot of what we watched is is true. Um, wow. You know, which for me was a real, I mean, I knew we'd done our research and we put it, but the fact that it was so clearly true, even though we twisted it into, you know, as absurd a level as we could get to, um, that for me was just the, the shocking kind of. I can imagine. Yeah. And during this process, as 
you and the guys are piecing together the outline. Was there any pressure? I mean, you're two seasons into the thick of it by this point, and it's it has got this really ravenous cult fan base. Yeah. You, you know, you are you're trying to please those fans that already exist, but you're also trying to open up the world of this film of that beloved series to a whole new audience. Was that there must have been pressure that came with that? Well, I I can't remember really. If, I mean, my feeling was I kind of knew what I wanted to do with it and the scale of it. I didn't want it to go massive, you know, so it wasn't a huge budget film by any means. Um, uh, you know, I wanted to keep very much the same crew as well as the same cast that we used on the thick of it and the same, you know, but, but you would get these, you know, other... You'd get an American bunch, would get James Gandolfini in it as well as, you know, Peter. Um, you know, so I didn't, no, I didn't actually. And and also because it was a low budget film, there wasn't even pressure in terms of selling it to America. Because um, it, um, it, in fact, it was, I mean, and I also, also, you know, I'd always wanted to make a film, you know, I love movies and I love the cinema experience and I've been meaning to make a film for some time. Um, and I was very grateful that it got that kind of thing that you dream of with your first film when it got noticed at Sundance and became the buzz of Sundance. So yeah. by the time I arrived, because it hadn't actually, we were scheduled to officially premiere it towards the end of the festival, but they'd been screening it privately to press and uh, distributors at the start. So I kind of arrived in, in, in at the Sundance Festival with people saying, they're all talking about your film and, and, and going into this massive, you know, 2000 seater sports arena for people to be watching the premiere and stuff. And it was just a bizarre, you know, going back to my room and baskets of fruit and um, <laughs> winter clothes from various agencies in America <laughs> kind of arriving, you know, and lunches being set up with, you know, it was all hilarious. Um, and it was great fun. Um, so I didn't feel I didn't feel under pressure. I mean, my only thought was, will people be interested in a kind of detailed comedy about bureaucracy between Britain and America that leads to all-out war in another country? Um, you know, is that the sort of thing people want to go and see? <laughs> so, but you know, that first hate of the Sundance thing gave it the kind of momentum that, 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 that um, you know answered that question, I suppose. Mm. So I wanted to touch on just a few of the really memorable scenes from the film. So we start the film in a corridor of number 10. Malcolm Tucker, government director of communications, is arriving early. He's on the phone. A civil servant passes him a CD. Without breaking flow, Malcolm raises an eyebrow. What's this? Another civil servant replies, monitoring. Simon Foster on the PM program. Wonky Ron on farming today. Malcolm walks into his office and starts listening to this recording of Simon on the radio. What's the dynamic Simon Foster going to wow us with? He wonders aloud to his assistant. Simon on the radio is then heard saying, of course, the big one is diarrhea, which is a major health issue in these countries. Malcolm says, diarrhea? Come on, Simon. Your international development. Talk about food parcels, not our spraying mayhem. <laughs> Simon continues. Are you just going to uh, carry on for the next hour and a half? Just yeah, just going to read the whole thing. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's that good. Um, go. But yeah, there is that moment just a, a moment later. We're up, this is still page one. Simon continues. He mentions diarrhea again. Malcolm then has that brilliant line. What is this? The shitting forecast. I just wanted to ask, yeah, do you always try and get like a knockout joke like that on page one or as close as possible? Oh, yeah. And it's part of the process. And a lot of that sounds like Ian Martin. 
the, the infamous swearing consultant. The infamous swearing consultant. Once we've got the story absolutely nailed down, this is going to happen in this scene, this is going to happen, that's going to lead to this, this is going to lead. Once we've got that, then it's about workshopping a lot of the scenes. So a lot of this is based on two weeks of rehearsals we do with the script from the cast and just walk it through. For this, we did, you know, a week in London, then we went out to New York and did a week in New York uh, with the cast out there. And, and then... Um, rewriting it and rewriting it and always having a writer on set. So even on the day, if we think, oh, is there something funny we could, yeah, let's, is there a moment there that, you know, sometimes I'm just chucking in thoughts, you know, as, as, as I think, uh, there's something about the white stripes at some point where he, <laughs> yes, he says, you two, two out. White stripes, isn't it? Exactly. Right? Yeah. Yeah. That was, I just threw that in as we were doing it, you know, things like that. So there's no, you know, there never is a shooting script as such. There's a kind of an idea of what we might shoot, but the understanding is on the day, we'll, we'll try a few other little bits and pieces as well. Well, I mean, we talked about Malcolm there momentarily, but we should go into more detail. He has so many great, great lines in this film. Um, were there kind of, yeah, in terms of like total anarchic joy, where does writing dialogue for Malcolm Rank well, among all the great characters. It's slightly the treat we give ourselves at the end of the day to write more swearing. <laughs> 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 you know, we sort of feel we've earned it. If we've solidly, you know, got quite a good set of scenes out of the way, then we can go back and look at Malcolm's speeches and so on. <laughs> Where does he rank for you amongst like all the characters you've been able to write dialogue for over the years? Oh, uh, I mean, it, I don't know. I mean, it, he, it, it's, I don't know. It's, it's, uh, you know, he's he's certainly there with Alan Partridge in terms of his sort of impact, I think. Alan has more life in him. I mean, Alan's still alive. Mm. I mean, I'm not saying Malcolm's dead, but, you know, <laughs> we're not planning any Malcolm projects. Um, whereas Alan, Alan keeps going. Um, uh, uh, but also, it's it, it was also important, I think, that um, we get, you know, we made sure that all the other characters were serviced. And, you know, we wanted to have this moment in which we have two thousand film where Jim's character, James Gandolfini's character, the general, and Malcolm have a kind of head-to-head. And it was only late on in the day that I realised we didn't have a scene like that. So we wrote it fairly late on in the day. And actually, plot-wise, it's of no relevance whatsoever, that scene. It's funny, it's one of those scenes people talk about but actually, in terms of what it does to the story, it does nothing. I mean, all it is is the two of them happening to bump into each other and doing a bit of a kind of kind of staring match with each other. <laughs> yeah. And then they go their separate ways. <laughs> um, but, it just but, does seem to, that moment does seem to sum up a lot of the sort of culture clash elements of the film, yes, though. Yes, yes. And it's both, both of them sounding tough, sounding like they're threatening the other. And in the end, both of them are found wanting for one, way, one reason or another. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's it's uh, and that, so in, so. I'm not saying you know it's a scene that should have been cut from the film because it sounds awful. it sounds a lot of purposes, but it's sort of an emotional thing rather than a narrative thing. And it's interesting. A lot of these scenes, you have all the beats and dialogue are in place, but um, in the actual film, the actors seem to have had a bit of room to kind of improvise around yeah. it. Lines coming in at different points. How important yeah. is it to to you to like write scenes with a bit of elasticity so performers can kind of find oh, their own rhythms yeah. in there? It's, it's important because you want you know you want the line the lines that are you think are 
important. You want them to land really well. But I think they can only land if you feel this world is a real world, that that these people are genuinely having a conversation and are not just, you know, hitting their cues right. Uh, there was one scene, it's when General and um, Mimi Kennedy's character, the, the assistant secretary of state, sit down and are eating Chinese food and looking at... Um, intelligence and so on and it was sort of okay you know we did the scripted version it was sort of okay but it wasn't quite wasn't quite there and we rewrote it and shot it again two or three days later but I also encouraged them to improvise and 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 it suddenly came alive there's a bit where um James Gandolfini's character says, uh, oh, you know, she says, have you read the report? And he said, oh, yeah, I've read it. You know, I, well, I've read it. I read everything. I'm the Paul <laughs> Vidal of... Uh, of and, 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 she, and then they went into improv. She, she went, Gore's gay. You know that. You know he's gay. And the general Miller is going, no, he wasn't. Yeah, he was. Oh, oh. I suppose I better not call myself that then. You know, getting that macho mm. kind of... Uh, in, in, in general, his homophobic kind of, and that was just a you know a little moment that they were having a bit of fun they were having, but it felt so real and and and, and then allowed you to kind of the the scripted lines to kind of sit with them. Yeah, the whole film's like this sort of simmering volcano of bad decisions and buffoonery that builds towards all these plot threads coming together. Can you tell me about that that sort of final strand of the film and how hard it was to kind of tie everything up? Well, it's usually. Um, it's usually the sort of thing that comes together. I like to try and shoot as much as I can. It's not always possible in story order as much as I can. So we deliberately left this final chunk towards the end. It involved being at the UN. So we knew that's the bit we were actually going to go out to Washington and New York to shoot. So it was actually the end of the shoot. So it just gave us time to kind of see how everything was converging. You know, the final, when Malcolm gets Simon, the minister, when he skewers them over the wall, this constituents place. <laughs> yes. That was a very late kind of thought. And it was one of the last scenes we shot while we were still in London. Um, but that happens with all my projects really is that, you know, the ending is usually something, I have a vague idea of what's going to happen, but we don't quite know until we've got, you know, the first third of it at least under our belt, because then we know who everyone is. We know how these characters work. We know where, this, where the real elements, of the, the strong elements of the story are, and therefore what we should be trying to push at the very end. Mm-hmm. We ended up actually... We couldn't get permission to actually film outside the UN, so we had to do it remotely. Mimi was on a phone because she's making a phone call. Yeah. But it's actually me on the other end of a phone from a building <laughs> about two blocks down with, with, with kind of binoculars going, okay, just move to your left now and then just go through the gates and then come out. You know, it's just all. <laughs> that was the very last scene we shot. Uh, really, and then, and then Mimi, who was there on her own because she was being filmed from a distance, just to celebrate, just opened her bag and took out some confetti <laughs> <laughs> to celebrate the end. Of- I think one of my favourite parts of where all the of the film and where all the characters end up is um, Toby's character being kind of found out for his affair and trying to claim that maybe on some subconscious level. I was trying to stop the war. I remember as we rehearsed that, Gina McKee, who was uh, uh, playing um, 
the sort of head of communications at the time, mm. she genuinely burst out laughing at that. <laughs> and we just thought it was so funny that we should keep her, her actual laugh in the, you know, her kind of giggling at what he was saying, <laughs> what he was saying in the film. Yeah. So, Armando, this film and this whole era of your work is kind of full of characters who are defined by their buffoonery. And the failing of the characters in In the Loop is, for the most part, incompetence and a sense of self-preservation. They're careerists. They're either trying to protect their jobs or they're trying to worm their way into better positions. The worst thing that you could say about them is that they're, they're spineless. But what's never suggested on screen in this film or in the thick of it is that they're actively malicious people with sinister intentions or sinister belief systems. Obviously, like today, that's something that we do actually have to kind of, the political landscape today is quite diff- quite different. And we do actually have to contemplate that about a lot of people in power today. All of that, strangely enough, is is in the next film, which was nine years later in The Death of Stalin. Where that's it, right. It, yeah. Very malicious. <laughs> <laughs> but would it make... To survive, where survival is about actual survival of one's life rather mm. than one's career. Really. <laughs> But would that make it difficult for uh, The Thick of It to come back today or another film like In the Loop to exist? That's not the tone uh, of this. It's not series. difficult, but I think, you know, your story would be very different because what's happening now is so absurd. You know, the, the politicians, uh, the public figures has, are so shameless now. They, they're no longer trying to hide stuff. You know, they'll just come out with it. Mm. You know, it when Donald Trump can say, I could literally shoot a guy in the face in the middle of Fifth Avenue and they'd still vote for me. You know, then uh, those kind of rules have gone, you know. Yeah. So in the loop in the thick of it is there pointing out when the rules are are bent and sometimes broken. But if everyone is breaking the rules now, there are no rules. So it's difficult to make a show or a film in which it, you're pointing out that people are breaking the rules because we know that because they're telling us they're breaking the rules, you know. <laughs> We've literally had a cabinet minister in the House of Commons saying, you know, under this new legislation, we will be breaking international law, but in a very limited and specific way, as if somehow that's an excuse. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I stabbed him in the eye, which, you know, is is a very limited form of stabbing. And, uh, (laughs) you know, it it doesn't, you either break the law or you don't. You don't, you know. so, which isn't to say you can't then do anything that has a kind of polit- political bent in comedy, but I think it just it'll just it would just have to rethink what it is it's trying to do, you know, what it's trying to say. Mm. And part of your process in terms of getting around that over the last few years, and with Avenue Five, which I love, um, that it it seems to be you've I mean in that series, which for people who haven't seen is essentially is it too reductive to say it's Titanic on a cruise liner in space? It's kind it of a long bit. Yeah, no, that's fine. And but it's it's also to do with people having to form their own society, you mm. know, having to start again and, and realizing that there's no real leadership. And it is a kind of we're writing the second season at the moment, which is very much about fakery, deep fakery, belief systems, conspiracy, isolation, you know, all these things. So it is, it goes back to what I was saying about Trump and so on. I mean, it's called Fifth Avenue because of Trump's quote about, I can shoot a guy in the face. Yeah. You know, it's about one has to actually leave the planet and the time period a little bit behind and look a bit further from it. Yeah. To kind of make some sense of 
uh, I'll make some kind of response to what, what's going on. Mm. So that seems to have been your way of getting around the conundrum of, yeah, how do you grapple with politics yeah. in 2020? Yeah. But there's, um, yeah, there's one moment particularly in Avenue 5 that I watched prior to the pandemic and then have rewatched since and it just hits completely differently. There's a moment in Avenue 5 where I don't think it's too spoilery to say there are characters aboard this ship who are convinced that in fact there is not uh, any, they are not even in space. It's all fake news and they they're basically big, try and... They're in a big studio on Earth and if they just leave the airlock, the, the families will be there to greet them. And they do. And you see them die in space, but it doesn't stop more people who believe that same story running out of the airlock and dying in space. And then a third group of people running out of the airlock and dying in space. And, and yes, and it went out roughly as people in America were saying, there is no virus. We shouldn't be locked up. We should go out. I, I demand my freedom to shop. And there was a group of them actually beating on the doors of a department store being asked to be let in. That's right, yeah. Um, Well, there we go. Well, season two takes, you know, picks up from where that leaves off. (laughs) Well, I can't wait for that, Armando. And are there other film projects in the pipeline as well? Oh, yeah. I mean, I've got some scripts that have been around for a while that we've written. um, One about artificial intelligence and one's more of a kind of thriller. I'm looking at social media and... I'm just trying to get this balance between <clears throat> doing the TV show, like Avenue 5, which you, you, part of the fun of it is seeing how it grows over a number of seasons. You know, that's what we got from Veep. You know, by the end of season three of Veep, she was like, she was no longer Veep, she was the president. Um, and, and so playing around with that, which is something you can allow to kind of grow over time. And then a film, which you you know you just have one go at. You can't can't do a pilot movie followed by the real movie. You know, <laughs> you, you, it's, a, it's completely different disciplines, really. And so I'm just trying to balance balance the two. But yeah, no, having done two films back to back, you know, I'm now doing Avenue Five, but I'm quite keen to uh, pretty soon do another movie. Well, Amanda, this has been so much fun delving into the history of In the Loop with you. Thank you so much for coming on Script Apart. Pleasure. Thank you very much. Good luck in the edit. <laughs> You've been listening to Script Apart, hosted by me, Al Horner, produced by Kemal Demek, with music from Stefan Bindley Taylor. Get in touch. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, or you can email us, the Script Apart Podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.